Hey, podcast listeners, thanks for streaming today's podcast from Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory is a nonprofit ministry featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Robert Jeffress. And right now, your generous gift will have twice the impact thanks to the Proclaim the Gospel Matching Challenge active right now through December 31st. To give a special year-end gift, go to ptv.org podcast and click the Donate button, or follow the link in our show notes. Now, here's today's podcast from Pathway to Victory. This is Robert Jeffress. In response to the horrific attack on Israel, I've written a brand new book called Are We Living in the End Times? Go to ptv.org to order your copy. You know, the Bible says there are only two things that are going to last for eternity. People, everybody's going to live forever, some in heaven, some in hell, and God's Word. Thy Word is settled in heaven forever. And if you want to have a life that continues after you die, you're going to spend your life investing God's Word in the lives of other people. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. The Sermon on the Mount seems to contain a sequence of paradoxes like, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Sounds completely backward, doesn't it? Well, today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress suggests that when you view things from the perspective of Jesus himself, his statements start to make a lot more sense. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David. All this month on Pathway to Victory, we're giving our undivided attention to the person and work of Jesus Christ. After all, what's more fitting during the Christmas season than focusing our affection on Him? And in a moment, we'll look at Luke chapter 6, in which we find Jesus' renowned Sermon on the Mount. December is significant for another reason. At Pathway to Victory, we're excited about the incredible $500,000 Proclaim the Gospel Matching Challenge. Because of this tremendous matching fund, every dollar you give to Pathway to Victory this month will be automatically matched and doubled in impact until we reach this significant mark. Can you imagine the impact of using more than $1 million in total to tell more people about Jesus Christ? Your investment today will go directly toward touching more lives and helping us expand into cities where Pathway to Victory is yet to be heard. And today, your gift will have twice the impact. To say thank you for your partnership today, I'm going to send you the brand new 2024 Pathway to Victory Daily Devotional. This is a handsome and hefty leather-bound book with readings for every Monday through Friday in the coming new year. I'll say more about the devotional later, but right now let's get started with our study in Luke chapter 6. I titled today's message, The Crux of Christianity. Chuck Swindoll tells a great story about a couple that lived in New Orleans. The husband loved his wife desperately, but he hated his wife's cat. Some of you can relate. Every night he'd come home from work and that cat would curl itself around his leg. The cat would jump up in his lap while he was trying to eat dinner. At night, the cat would insist on sleeping at the end of the bed. One weekend, his wife had to leave town for a few days to go visit her mother. And the husband thought this was his big chance. So while his wife was gone, he took a burlap sack, loaded it with rocks, put the cat in there, went down to the Mississippi River and threw the cat in, in bag into the Mississippi River. He knew his problem was over. 
comes back home Sunday night. His wife returns from visiting her mother. And of course, the first thing she wanted to know was where was her cat? He said, well, I guess the cat ran away. She burst into tears. And so trying to console his wife, he said, look, I'll try to retrieve your cat for you. And so the next day he put an ad in the newspaper, $500 reward for missing cat. And he put his phone number in there. Of course, there was no response. That night, his wife again began to sob uncontrollably. And so he said, well, let me put another ad in the newspaper. So the next day he took out an ad, $1,000 for missing cat and put his telephone number. Later in the day, a coworker said, hey, I saw that ad in the newspaper for the missing cat and I recognized your phone number. That sure is a lot of money to offer for a cat. The husband smiled and said, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. <laughs> Some of you can't get past the cat in the river, I know that. <laughs> but just try for a moment, okay? You know, Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 6. Not about cats, but the message of Luke chapter 6 is very clear. When you know what Jesus knows, you can afford to be generous in your attitude toward difficult circumstances and difficult people. And that's the theme of the message we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. We've come in our study of Luke to some of Jesus' most familiar words. We call them the Sermon on the Mount. And they're some of Jesus' most familiar teachings, but also some of his most misunderstood words. He talks about love your enemies, turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you for your coat, not only give them your coat, but your shirt as well. And a lot of people realize these words seem impossible to keep. How in the world can they apply in a world like ours today? And so I've noticed throughout the ages, people have gone to one of two extremes when it comes to these words that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say, this is a list of requirements of what you must do to go to heaven when you die. Now, if that's true, if Jesus was giving us a list of impossible requirements to keep, then Jesus was no better than the Pharisees. Remember what he said about the Pharisees? They tie up heavy loads on the backs of men so that they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees had all of these do's and don'ts that made it impossible for anybody to keep. So Jesus is no better than if he gives us this list and says, this is how you go to heaven. I don't think that's what this is. But other people go to the opposite extreme. In fact, it's the extreme that most evangelicals go to. And that is saying that these words have no application for our world today. In fact, I attended a seminary, one seminary, that taught that. Well-known professor used to say about the Sermon on the Mount that this has no application for today. This is the constitution for the millennial kingdom. And this is the way we're all going to act when we get into the millennium, but we can't do that today. Is that what Jesus is saying? As I read these words, there's nothing to suggest that this is for some future generation. Jesus is talking about how we are to act as Christians. And yes, it's difficult. If you believe this world is all that there is, these commands are impossible to keep. There's no motivation for keeping them if this is all that there is. But remember the theme, when you know what Jesus knows about the future, 
You can be generous in your attitude toward difficult circumstances and difficult people. Now, before we get into the summary of the Sermon on the Mount, let's first of all look at the setting for this sermon. That's key to understanding what Jesus is saying. Look at Luke 6, verse 12. And it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. It was at this time that Jesus prayed all night. Now, of course, the question is, what time are you talking about? Well, the answer's in the preceding verse, verse 11. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees had been enraged by Jesus, what he was teaching. They decided, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so they were plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus is now aware that his time on earth is very, very limited. And at this time, he goes off to pray all night. By the way, have you come to grips with the fact that your time on earth is limited? Have you come to grips with the fact that you are going to die? And it's going to come sooner than you can possibly expect. All of us are going to die, every one of us. And the inevitability of death produces one of two reactions. One reaction, the most common reaction is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is, grab all the gusto you can get. Have all the pleasure, the recognition. Pile up all the money you can, because one day you're going to die. That's one reaction. The other reaction, the one that lasts beyond your death, is to decide to invest your life in something that will outlast it. You know, the Bible says there are only two things that are going to last for eternity. People, everybody's going to live forever, some in heaven, some in hell, but people are eternal and God's word is eternal. Thy word is settled in heaven forever. And if you want to have a life that continues after you die, you're going to spend your life investing God's word in the lives of other people. And that's what Jesus decided to do. He decided to instill his teaching in other people. And by the way, that's what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is spending your limited time on earth helping other people be faithful followers of Jesus Christ by instilling his word in them. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? Paul knew his life was limited. And so he said to his young protege in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul knew that the continuation of Christianity depended upon him having someone to carry on his teaching after he died. You know, Dr. Criswell used to say all the time, I remember him saying this all the time, every civilization is only one generation away from paganism. Every civilization, only one generation away from paganism. If we fail to pass on the Christian truth to the next generation, we become a pagan people. And that's what discipleship is. It is investing our lives and instilling God's word in the lives of other people. Of course, for those of us who are parents, our most important discipleship project is our own children. To teach our children to follow God and to imitate Christ. But our children aren't our only discipleship project. We need to be entrusting our faith to other men and women who will carry on the faith. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus knew his time was limited. He didn't have any natural children, but he decided to pass along his faith to 12 men who would be entrusted with the the Christian faith to spread it throughout the world. And so he needed guidance from his heavenly father, which 12 men should I choose? And so he goes and has an all night prayer meeting for God's wisdom in making the right choice. Now I could get real sanctimonious here if I wanted to, and I could say, what is it you're so concerned about that you've ever stayed up all night and prayed about? I could do that if I wanted to, but I'd be a hypocrite. Because the fact is, I have never purposefully stayed up all night to pray about something. Now, I have had times when I couldn't go to sleep at night. And when I was so concerned about something that I would pray, and then I would drift off to sleep for a little bit, and then I would wake up and start praying about it again and drift off to sleep. Many of us have had that experience. But honestly, I've not stayed up all night purposefully to pray. So I'm not going to ask you that question. Here's the question I am going to ask you. What are you so concerned about in your life right now that you would devote just five minutes a day to pray for? Is there anything in your life, your children, your work, the health concern of a friend or yourself, anything that you're willing to spend five uninterrupted minutes a day praying for? Jesus knew how important prayer was. And so he prayed all night. And the result, verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Let me say a word. You might want to write this down about the difference between a disciple and an apostle. A disciple is a follower of a rabbi. A disciple is somebody who is so enthralled with the rabbi that he seeks to imitate not just his words, but his example. To be a disciple of Jesus means to model your attitudes, actions, and affections after Jesus. It means to love what Jesus loved, act like Jesus acted, think like Jesus thought in every situation. The simple definition I gave you a few months ago of a disciple is this. To be a disciple means for me to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were I. How would Jesus operate if he had your job? How would Jesus relate to your family members? How would Jesus relate to your friends? How would Jesus handle the amount of money he's entrusted to you? That's what it means to be a disciple. But out of the disciples came 12 apostles. These are the ones who would be sent forth, a unique group, to proclaim the message of Jesus to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, I could spend sermon after sermon talking about these apostles. I'm not going to do that. Let me just give you three observations about the list you find in verses 12 to 14. And you find the similar list in Matthew and Mark. Number one, the lists begin with Simon Peter. All three lists of the apostles begin with Peter. He was the leader. But you know what? What's interesting? He was the greatest failure of all of the apostles. Here's a guy who denied Jesus not once or twice, but three different times. He was a major screw-up as an apostle. And yet, Jesus chose him to be the leader. Doesn't that give you hope? 
It doesn't matter how much you failed, what is in your past. God can take your mistakes, forgive them, and redeem them. Peter is at the beginning of every list. Secondly, the list ends with Judas Iscariot. You know, Iscariot, uh, E-I-S, comes from the Hebrew word ish, man. Cariot is probably a derivation of Carioth, the town of Judea. Judas, the man of Carioth. We all know about Judas. He's the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and led to his crucifixion. Now, at first reading, we have to think, well, why did Jesus choose Judas? Did he make a mistake? No, all of this was a part of God's plan Jesus chose Judas for a reason because Jesus knew God could use the evil in Judas's own heart to accomplish his purpose. I'm gonna say more about that in a moment. But God can take evil people, he can take evil circumstances that are used against you and he can still use those for your good and his eternal purpose. The final thing I notice about these lists is they are comprised of young men. You know, when we think about the apostles, we think about these you know, old white guys with beards, you know, and uh, think of the 60, 70 year olds. No, most Bible scholars believe these men were probably in their late teenage years, early 20s at the most when they were chosen to be apostles. Now, having said all of that, verse 17 tells us that when Jesus descended to a plain, there was a great multitude of his followers there. And verse 20 says, turning his gaze on his disciples. What I want you to notice is this message we're going to look at for just a few moments is not a message for the unsaved. There's nothing in this passage that will tell you how to go to heaven when you die. There's nothing about God's forgiveness through Jesus or the cross or the blood of Christ. This was a message for his disciples, his followers. You know, it's interesting. Jesus was in the midst of relentless criticism from the Pharisees. But Jesus did not spend his time answering the criticism of the Pharisees. In fact, in this passage, Jesus doesn't try to answer the Pharisees. Instead, he invests his time with his disciples, his followers. And here's a great leadership principle that won't cost you anything extra, but I want you to write it down. Here's a mark of a true leader. A true leader doesn't invest his time with problem people. He invests his time with people with potential. Let me say it again. A real effective leader invests his time not with people with problems, but people with potential. He doesn't invest his time with people who are causing trouble and are upset all the time. He invests his time with the people who have potential. You see that over and over again, the mistake of focusing your attention on people who just have problems. You know, we see this in families. There's a problem child in the family. The parent devotes all the attention and emotional issue to this child with the problems and neglects the rest of the children in the family who have great potential. Or you see this in businesses. A business is all hung up on this one or two problem disgruntled customer they have. And they forget all of the potential customers they could be devoting their resources toward. 
You see this in a church. I see this time and time again in churches. A church has a little handful of disgruntled members. And the leaders of the church are focused on these disgruntled members. Oh, what did we do to offend you? Or what could we do to make you happy? And the pastor stands up and he focuses on that little group and he's just lambasting them week after week after week, forgetting that 99% of the people in the church are happy with the church. They're excited about what's going on, but he focuses on the few with problems. Again, a real leader is somebody who doesn't focus his attention on people who are causing problems, but people with potential. And that's what Jesus did. He focused this message on the ones who would carry on his faith long after he had ascended back into heaven. And that brings us to the substance of the sermon beginning in verse 20. Let me remind you, this is just a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. You find a longer version in Matthew 5 through 7. This is a short version of it. Some people get hung up on that. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. Why are the accounts different? It's just a summary. You know, in the English language, we have quotation marks. And in your text, it probably shows quotation marks. In the English language, quotation marks means this is a word-for-word -word exact quotation of what somebody said. In the Greek language, there were no quotation marks. This is an indirect paraphrase of what Jesus said. And that's why Luke emphasizes some things that Matthew doesn't. So don't get hung up on that. This is a paraphrase of what Jesus said. Now, having said that, remember the theme. When we know what Jesus knows, we can be generous, first of all, in our attitude toward difficult circumstances. Let's just look at some of these. Verse 20, and turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, blessed, literally, happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, he's not talking about material poverty. There's nothing blessed about being poor financially, automatically. Matthew adds the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is blessed, happy are those of you who recognize your spiritual poverty. I like the way one commentator says it. Blessed are those who realize they are spiritual zeros. For one day, yours will be the kingdom of God. Do you ever feel like a spiritual zero? You just feel like you're not succeeding in your Christian life? You know you ought to pray more and read the Bible more, but you just can't do it, and you don't react like you should, and you wish you could be better than you are? He said, relax. Be happy. Because one day, that struggle you have in your Christian life is going to be satisfied. Yours is going to be the kingdom of God. Verse 21, blessed, happy are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, another version says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's talking about a spiritual hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you ever wish we lived in a world where justice reigned? Do you wish we had a world where there was no terrorist attacks? Do you wish there was a world in which evil would be overcome by good every time? That's what he's talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For one day, you will be satisfied. One day, the tables are going to be turned and God is going to right the wrongs of this world. And our role as believers is to share this good news as broadly and as widely as we possibly can until Jesus returns. 
In the meantime, our mandate is to expand the kingdom of God and to shine the light of truth into the corners of darkness. Not long ago, I received a letter from a woman who hears Pathway to Victory in Alabama. Lena said, Dr. Jeffress, God has used your program to bring me back to Him after being away from a right relationship for so long. She went on to describe her ominous circumstances and how God restored her life. When you give to Pathway to Victory, God is using your generosity to touch lives like Lena's. This program becomes a beacon of hope and light to people who live in darkness. And today, because of the matching challenge, your investment in Pathway to Victory will be automatically matched and doubled in impact. Your generous gift of, say, $50 becomes $100. A $100 gift becomes $200. A $1,000 gift would become $2,000. To thank you for giving to the Matching Challenge, I'd like to send you the brand new and exclusive 2024 Pathway to Victory Daily Devotional. I've written over 260 chapters so that you have material to guide you through every weekday of the new year. Without question, this is the largest and most impressive devotional we've ever published, and I want you to have a copy for the new year. So, there's never been a better time to give to Pathway to Victory. Be sure to respond today. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a generous year-end gift to support this ministry, we'll send you a copy of the all-new leather-bound Pathway to Victory daily devotional for 2024. To request your copy, call 866-999-2965 or visit our website, ptv.org. And when your gift is $100 or more, we'll also include this month's teaching series, The Incomparable Christ, on CD and DVD. Plus, you'll receive Celebrate the Savior, Volume 2. That's a brand new music CD featuring the very best Christmas music performances by the incredible First Baptist Choir and Orchestra. And because of our Proclaim the Gospel Matching Challenge, any gift you give will be doubled in impact. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. A lot of our listeners prefer to write. If that sounds like you, here's the address. P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. That's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again next time when Dr. Jeffress wraps up his message called The Crux of Christianity, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. In response to the alarming war in the Middle East, Dr. Robert Jeffress has written a brand new book for you. It answers pressing questions like, are we living in the end times? In this time-sensitive book, Dr. Jeffress answers seven questions about the future, such as, what are the major events of the end times? Request a copy right now by going to ptv.org. It's called, Are We Living in the End Times? To receive your pre-release copy, go to ptv.org. You've made it to the end of today's podcast from Pathway to Victory. We're so glad you're here. Pathway to Victory relies on the generosity of loyal listeners like you to make this podcast possible. And right now, your special year-end gift will be matched and therefore doubled in impact thanks to the Proclaim the Gospel Matching Challenge. 
Take advantage of this opportunity to double your impact before the deadline on December 31st. To give toward the matching challenge, go to ptv.org slash podcast and click on the donate button or follow the link in our show notes. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast from Pathway to Victory.